These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. So, chapter 34. Mm. It's difficult enough to even read the descriptions of Green Hollow, let alone to listen to them narrated to us in audio drama form. Where the presence of something that should be a blessing, pregnancy, here seeing these women pregnant feels foreboding to the audience, even threatening. Not just the audience, but to our heroes as well. Mm. And if Portentous something, is, yes, exactly. Yeah. And if something like that feels wrong and bad, then all of the other things present that are notable or seem off makes the entire tenor of these introductory paragraphs feel even worse. Even those that should ostensibly be welcome, aka the white members of the group are creeped out by something as simple as Rose McLellan commenting on Abby's height. Mm. Originally, while writing this outline, I wondered if I was primed to see darkness in everything, because I already knew what was coming. But that feels like I'm not giving the writing and the voice acting enough credit. While I may not be able to remember exactly how I felt three years ago, I'm sure that I still would have keyed into what Alex was laying down, given the influences he was drawing on both from the fictional world and the real world. But we'll get into that in a bit. If Mm. Steamheart is a meshing of all the genres that New Century has covered up till now, then we have just entered the horror part of our story. Mm. But instead of the stalking horror of Let Them Go, where you have a monster and you worry about the safety of our heroes, who's going to live, who's going to die. Instead, we have, or at least we start out with, the creeping horror of something on the level of Get Out, where Mm. you know something is wrong, but you don't know what, you don't know how bad, you don't know who, if anyone, you can trust. There's often, with horror, the same sort of level of guessing game as when you enter a murder mystery because Mm. the audience has entered an agreement with the story that we are going into this to be scared or we are going into this expecting someone to be killed Mm. so you're playing a guessing game of who's going to die who is the murderer and in horror it's who's not on the level where is the dread going to come from what is going to come at us in this you're right that you feel the malevolence of the people as soon as you get there. So the question of who it's coming from isn't exactly up in the air. It's just more like exactly what form and how deep it goes. Hmm. And I I would say that even on a first time reading or listening you would probably still feel primed to anticipate sort of resistance or like antagonism because they have actually been priming Harry to just be wary. That's the feeling that you get when you go in is wariness that Mm -hmm. no one is going into this under any impression other than be on guard because odds are we can't let our guard down they know it's bad they don't know how bad yeah they don't they don't know how manageable this situation is they don't Mm. know if this is something they can diplomacy their way through with as minimal risk and Mm. danger as possible it's like they know that they're probably keeping something under the table 
they just don't realize that when they look under the table, the entire floor's gone. And when we do arrive at Green Hollow, it is the beginning of a new chapter. It gives the sight that greets them an immediacy that instantly throws the group and the reader into a situation that feels emphatically wrong. The consistency of the pregnant women and the young age of far too many of them is an indication of what this settlement has dictated their place be in it. And it says everything about the ones in charge. Even the name Green Hollow might set one on edge. We just came from a place where the idea of a place of green growing things was twisted and wrong. So we might mistrust the use of that color. And Hollow, while not specifically a forbidding town name in and of itself, might make us think of Sleepy Hollow the setting of the fictional tale of the Headless Horseman. For myself, what comes to mind is the T.S. Eliot poem, The Hollow Men, which some might remember as the poem that ends with these lines. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. On top of that, the poem itself begins with a quote from Heart of Darkness, setting the mood for a tale of the titular Hollow Men and their journey through the underworld. And yeah, Rose's comment to Abigail is a perfectly chosen detail to establish the tone. It gets us uncomfortable and it clues us in to what kind of a person Rose is. She puts on airs of cordiality while still elevating herself as she dehumanizes those around her. She views others as a set of genetics, factors in an equation. The horror of this part of the story is less the kind where you're in a house alone in the woods when the frightening elements come to your door, as we see in Let Them Go. And it's more along the lines of wandering too far into unfamiliar territory and finding the human evil that lurks in this place that has hidden itself away from the rest of the world. It's that feeling you get from the sort of bayou horror that you would see in Resident Evil 7 with the Baker mm. family, but it mixes the airs of civility masking a deep-rooted practice of commodification that you would find in Get Out. And and on top of that, you also have the dinner scene and the desperate attempts of our protagonists to maintain a sense of amicable business while the explosion of violent upheaval is bubbling away just under the surface. And to me, that calls to mind Django Unchained. Mm. It's a cocktail of influences that avoids feeling too much like any one of them, largely owed to the main horror of the circumstance being centred on the barbaric dehumanising of women as nothing more than a crop to be harvested. Fuck. Mm. That's a well-chosen but disturbing turn of phrase. Women as nothing more than a crop to be harvested. I don't... <laughs> mm. Like, that... Because I haven't watched enough horror movies, I don't necessarily have an idea of a relatively similar seminal piece of horror work to compare that to. I, I could, wanna... but it might spoil one or two. Uh, it's the sort of thing that, like, trigger warnings exist for a reason, guys, so... Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm ever going to watch a movie like Barbarian, which I know... Okay, that was, that was what I was going to bring up, yeah. yeah. No, I people were saying fascinating things about Barbarian uh, mm. to the point where I was curious enough to read. It was someone's article that was outlining the specifics as to why Barbarian is as hard-hitting as it is. Mm. And after having read it, I was like, well, that's a fascinating take on it. I can see why someone would choose to write a story and try to incorporate those elements, that conversation into a horror setting. I wouldn't ever want to watch it 
because mm. it would it would be far too emotionally hard hitting in the wrong ways for me to enjoy it. But I can appreciate why a story like that would exist. Having said that, I think there's at least one movie on the horror movie list that Alex and Alejandra Vargas put together for me that might tap into that crop metaphor. I really need to get around to start watching and see if my hunch is correct. I will add that not everyone's take on it was as positive, so it's entirely possible that the article I read was just one person's interpretation and that it might have hit certain elements by accident or that this one person had a very specific interpretation of it that sounded more interesting to me than it was. But Alex Alex in particular hmm. didn't care for it. And honestly, while I know that my tastes are not the same as his tastes, I would be more likely to trust a horror story that he enjoyed than one that he did not. At the time that I finished it, I felt like it lost the thread a bit towards Mm -hmm. the end and I went away from it not particularly impressed but as time has gone on I think I have kind of warmed to it and I think it did do I think I do know the article you're referring to and Mm -hmm. I definitely agree that that is the strongest statement and thing that it has to say that I thought was very good about the idea of it being this story of cascading male like imbalances of power and how they exert that over women and the consequences of that. I don't think that's by accident because the film is structured Mm. in a very specific way that I think if you ask why does it choose to tell its story the way it does, the only conclusion I can really draw from it is because it wants you to draw comparisons and parallels between the three moments that Mm. kind of codify the rest of the film. Anyway, circling back, the horror is that feeling of just, you can see its obviousness on the surface. Like The true nature of this place sticks out and is as obvious like a pregnant woman's belly. Toby did point out that that metaphor was the low-hanging fruit, but if the shoe fits... It's there from moment one, and you can't help but draw conclusions of why is this so universally the case? Mm -hmm. Then the conversation at the dinner table indicates their method of doing things, and it's like... Give me just half a second! (laughs) What the fuck? A lot of American horror to me is about the idea of going into the home and finding the horrible depths of man that are enclosed within a home that bars the rest of the world from looking inward. That's what I see here. And it's the horror of a lot of things that take place in a sort of American suburbs with white picket fences and Mm. isn't everything going all so well and as soon as you go through the slightly too glossy white veneer of it all you see just how rotten to the core this is or can be and the awful things that people can do behind closed doors and away from the windows in order to preserve that life there's a quote that i remember Related to what you were just saying a moment ago from William Shakespeare, one of my favorite authors, Robert B. Parker, wrote a story that the title was based on this line. Through tattered clothes, small vices do appear. Robes and furred gowns hide all. Plate sin with gold, and the strong lance of justice hurtless breaks. Arm it in rags and a pigby straw does pierce it. Mm. Here, it's not simply about the evils that rich people do. There are no quote-unquote rich people here in this post-apocalyptic America. But here instead, the veneer is not of gold, but of civility, southern civility. We are white people, and so therefore we are automatically better than everybody else. Anything that we do to prop ourselves up 
is justified because all others are lesser. And there's such artifice to all of it, and there always has been, but the fact that you see it in this closed-off community that they've arbitrarily set up these rules and laws, uh, I think we do talk more about Rose later, mm -hmm. but I think one of the most galling things about her is... No, this is, this is stepping on something that I'm planning to use later, so I'm just going to backtrack. I'm just in such a rush to talk about how awful the person that Rose is, but... Using etiquette mm. and notions of this is the way that things ought to be is like a weapon. A sharp, hardened wall of a castle that lets you feel like you have some sense of ownership, security from the world and the forces that would set upon you. This family, these people are using it to carve out their own identity of this is who we are and this is who you are in order for us to be this and we will apply this sense of superiority mm. where we may in and for as long as we can to make this last in not just greek culture but in a lot of old world cultures there was a significant amount of cachet put behind the power and responsibilities of hearth of hospitality breaking the rules of hospitality was the kind of things that fairies and gods would punish mortals for for breaking those inherent rules hestia the goddess of the hearth or titania queen of the fairies would be thoroughly enraged by the mclellan's weaponization of the hospitality contract by you must come and sit and dine with us and that will be the way in for us to kill or control you this yeah i'm not Hello. sure i can yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so but because you wanted to talk about it and because i also want to talk about it circling back to barbarian for a second the overall theme there is very much when we were talking about privilege and talking about self-perception, it centers very clearly on men, which is why Rose in particular hits us below the belt. I, speaking for myself, have a tendency to be more afraid of men than women overall. Not because I think women are weaker than men in temperament or physicality, more because I just expect the average man to be a bigger asshole and more aggressive. And again, from my experience, not simply from the stereotype of media, I expect women to be more empathetic and understanding. And it feels shocking that I am more afraid personally of Rose McLellan than Dale, or Buford, or any of the other men present, because of the open admission she makes on how this program of forced breeding was entirely her idea. The way she objectifies and commodifies her own gender is horrifying. The men are like her muscle. Kind of similarly in the way that Mohawk felt like the muscle of Beatrix, but at least Beatrix seemed to feel bad about it, seemed mm. to realize this is an ugly person and I'm only using him because I'm worried I won't be able to control him otherwise. 
but everyone seems to follow what Rose wants without question, again, because of some of those Southern values, because of the power of the matriarch in this particular setup. And thinking further about it, her approval in this matter just makes the men feel further justified in what they're already inclined to do. Her rubber-stamping their atrocious beliefs makes them righteous. In a modern context, is like a guy saying, she's one of the good ones. She herself sees nothing wrong with what she is doing. She doesn't struggle with this idea like Beatrix seemed to. She is immune because of status and privilege. She is a monster hidden under that cloak of the civility that we talked about under her matronly dominance. Mm. And all of this is clear from Go. Obviously, she gets more explored in future chapters. We're only covering chapter 34 here, but like she gets kidnapped by the group in order to hopefully maintain the well-being of those trapped inside Steamheart. So we know that she's going to continue being around for a little bit longer. But what happens later with her is confrontation. It is not revelation. Everything is laid bare in this chapter. What's particularly galling about all of this is the foundation used to justify this horrific system that Rose has set up. She's not using religion or any human superstitions to frame this as the necessary course of action spiritually. Even if she does, I think, here or there, cite this is godly to follow this course of action. Mm. But it reinforces her argument in her mind, but it is not the crux, the core foundation of it. Rose gives herself the moral high ground because she reached this conclusion through mathematic calculation. She has used a practice of logic to enact the unthinkable. Up till now, science, logic, and reasoning have been positioned as the positive characteristics of the heroic cast members of Centrum. Like them, we want to believe that if we practice and teach reasoning, that the world can be improved, that illogical practices like cruelty and Prejudice will die out. But here we are reminded with soul-crushing intensity that some people cannot be reasoned out of cruelty because they have sown themselves to the reasoning they used to prop up and maintain their systems of cruelty. In the face of crushing loss from a supernatural opponent, the natural response is to take solace in the hope that human ingenuity can be coupled with cooperation to muster and and rally in these hard times. But tragically, people like Rose are the examples of humanity that show how that same ingenuity can be turned towards acts of evil that fracture us even further. The character of her son Dale is a chilling counterpart to herself, not only in that he is a wretched monster himself, but in how much he fully embodies the brutal intimidation that Rose is clearly exercising over the people of Green Hollow and any who come across them. It's just that she gets to put it at a comfortable arm's reach, possibly using her son as an extension of herself. You get the sense when you walk into Green Hollow that you are entering a nightmare that has established itself here for a long time. And the people at the top of it are assured of their security in this world of their own making and will not budge from this entrenched place. It may be a cliche, but Rose's name is certainly apt. She appears elegant at the surface, but at her stem she is covered in thorns. Oh god, I don't know if I want to insert the clip every rose as its though, because that feels insulting to mm. the song that I'm quoting there. It's intriguing the way you put it just now, where we were already leading up to this beforehand, but when you specifically compare the inhumanity, quote-unquote, of the Wendigo and Seth to the darker humanity of Green Hollow, you know, obviously the quote that immediately comes to mind is from, put another caseless bullet in the bucket, 
aliens. You know, Burke, I don't know which species is worse. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. Mm, that is the quote that just keeps on giving, isn't it? Well, I mean, there's a reason why the movies that we love are so eminently quotable, because the people writing it, the people making these things together, are sometimes able to make such insightful truths in a, in a easily repeatable and mimetic fashion and couch it all inside a piece of media that we love overall. Mm-hmm. I certainly feel like we could very easily do the same and probably have done with the contents of New Century itself. So it's just like, this is the next iteration of that. We've already covered the arc of this particular chapter in terms of just the depths of what this place is revealed to be, both on the outside and on the inside. But now we have... Inside and outside. Inside and outside blew his house with the blue little window and a blue corvette and everything is blue for him and himself and everybody around cause he ain't got Nobody to listen. I haven't thought about them in a while. Oh, you surely inside would have thought about them. Outside, outside. Blue Corvette. <laughs> and everything is blue. Mm-hmm. We got into a great deal of the stuff that Abigail is going through in the previous chapters, thanks to her confrontation with Annie. Once more, we have an instance of Abigail being Abigail, acting on her emotions, her gut. In this particular circumstance, we don't necessarily mind that because it's important that someone get the lay of the land and try and see the things that the McClellans don't want them to see so Mm. that they don't end up more screwed than they already are. I did ponder to myself as I was re-experiencing this chapter and writing this outline, if she had not decided to go off on her own initiative, could calamity have been averted and they could have peacefully left Green Hollow? We know that's not the case. The food was poisoned. They were doomed the second they accepted entrance into the stockade. Regardless, in this particular case, I would not have Abby be anything but true to herself. Being herself is what ostensibly protects the group at this point. These are absolutely the people that should not be trusted. In spite of the fact that they had greater responsibilities than one town in the middle of Seth's domain, what automatically comes to mind is the adage that all evil needs to flourish is for good people to do nothing. There is great evil being done in this place, and it cannot stand. I would argue that it's even worth Abby breaking her vow to not kill. And I feel like we're going to get a little bit more into that discussion. Like, it's come up a number of times Alex's personal values over not glorifying violence in his Mm -hmm. works the way it so often is in a lot of movie media and a lot of video game media in particular. Mm -hmm. But I feel like because this is a topic that is re-entered into the discussion as Abigail kills a man defending herself and as things happen in the following chapters and how Abby struggles with that. But to talk about that in smaller detail, and I realize that I'm just sort of speaking for myself, some people just need killing. We are wholly on her side when she comes to that conclusion. In this one instance, her anger has served her, has protected her. And I'm neither going to second guess or posit if Abigail could have done something differently here. This isn't the road to Elkview, where Virgil and Carl are waylaying people to survive. This one man is abetting an atrocity, and it's hard for me to want to give him another chance if he's okay with that. 
even in a non-life-or-death situation. It's sort of hard not to look at, at the very least, the adult men of this place and not believe that they are a product of the same culture, of the same set of beliefs that has led Rose McLellan to, to perpetrate this horror upon her own people. Even if the RSA needs every able-bodied person to help rebuild America, is this kind of rot something you want to take a chance on? Would you want to risk this kind of belief infiltrating other communities by allowing Green Hollow to join, even if they could be convinced to? And I'm not even sure saying that the people in power in Green Hollow need to be quote-unquote exterminated. I'm just saying that part of me would be fine with rescuing the victims of this evil and leaving the others behind to be Wendigo food. And I'm not proud of that part of me either. Even though I haven't been the biggest fan of Abigail's behavior over these last two chapters, specifically towards her teammates, Mm -hmm. this is a moment of Abigail's impulsiveness that is so needed In fact, I'm glad the story and the team all waste no time in being wise to the fact that this place is messed up and they need to be on guard. Her encounter with the man with the mohawk, and yes, it occurred to me that we may very well be staring at this world's counterpart to that embodiment of the same kind of black-hearted cruelty we saw in Rama. It's a desperate fight and elevated by the role of the captive women who simultaneously act as vulnerable hostages slash innocent bystanders who are at risk of being fatally wounded in the crossfire of the struggle to the death, while they are also use what they have at their disposal to assist Abigail, that they are afforded some agency mm. that has been stripped away from them. It very much reminds me of the women... Furiosa is driving in Fury Road. Abigail is someone who cares deeply about fighting back against injustice on behalf of others, but she also has a capacity to be inwardly focused, and her reaction to Annie and comments to Butler following Crow's death are an indication of that. Here, she's able to shift her energy away from lashing out at the people around her that she feels trapped with, and towards fighting on behalf of a group of victimized women who need her. In the end, she just wishes she could do so much more in this moment. Mm, Because they are deep in enemy territory, and as the rest of this chapter establishes, they are not free to act with all of the resources and desires they have at this moment. It's an intriguing thing that you highlight bringing up the wives from fury road i hadn't thought of that necessarily but that's absolutely a a good call you may have heard an alarm pinging in the background here and what you are not aware of is i had been cooking a whole frozen lasagna that maureen had bought months ago but we never had the time or energy to properly cook and if you want to hear what toby said while he was waiting for me bustle about in the kitchen Listen to an upcoming Beyond the Wind Door, with little comedy bits and side conversations about other media, coming to a podcast channel, likely soon after the release of this episode. But on that topic of how that moment feels in the close proximity, while they're trying to pretend to continue to have a civil dinner downstairs, her individual fight leads into the conflict in the dining room, which led me to go on to say that this chapter includes some of the most intense action beats in the story. Mm. Even if they are not as visually and action intense as, say, the fight with the Southern Cross, the coming battle that surrounds our story's climax, or what happened previously regarding the siege on Steamheart by the Wendigo, and then Annie and company trying to assist Rao from defending them versus Seth and Brioth. The two circumstances are quite distinct in how different they are. The fight between Abigail and the human Mohawk feels as brutal as any desperate hand-to-hand we can think of in a movie. Like John McClane versus Carl, no, not that one. Steve Rogers in the elevator. 
or the bathroom fight in Born Ultimatum. By comparison, the scene in the dining room is what Alex would refer to as an inaction scene. Not just a standoff, but a situation where we don't want anything to happen, where we will most definitely lose one or more of our heroes. This isn't like the bloody bar shootout in Desperado, where there's one man with no leverage to be held against him. Buford has a knife to Frank's throat. Not to mention a lot more non-combatants trapped in Steamheart. And he rightly makes the decision, as evil as you people are, you still care about Rose, and so therefore I am going to use your values against you in order to protect the people I care about. But that leaves us in a very unsteady place as a result. The fight with Seth and Brayoff, as bad as it was, was conclusive. He retreated. He did not come back to harrow the group in any way. He did not call upon more Wendigo to besiege them while they were weak and no longer had Crow around to protect them. Here, it leaves everything unconclusive. Our friends are trapped, and meanwhile, James, Annie, and Abigail are running off with their hostage, and we don't know what's going to happen next. We fear what might happen next. All very well-made points. I'm glad that you raised them. But when you brought up Seth, like his retreat and the, the fact that we don't see him come back, all I could think of is the prospect of if the group saw him leave and then uh, one of them, either Butler or Raven, pipes up and says, they'll be back and in greater numbers. <laughs> Like, oh, like Seth is the sand people or something. Mm-hmm. Just like, he approaches on Brioff and goes, <laughs> they never, they never had, like Flipper, they never had the shark that did that, did they? <laughs> What's that, Sharky? <laughs> Three boys fell out of a boat. <laughs> <laughs> They're drowning. You've already eaten them. <laughs> well, you're no fucking good, are you? Look at her. Sharky, the friendly shark, but not too friendly. Yeah, I've already talked about the desperate struggle between Abigail and the guard with the mohawk, but the flurry of shattering violence during the dinner scene has a shocking impact. The poor woman, brave enough to express a fleeting, cautionary glance, is killed for no reason at all. Rose's husband just did it with the same line of thought as he would throwing away an object that has lost its purpose. I take a grim, small vindication in his victim being revenged immediately, as he is dispatched with more tactics and skill than he was capable of by Annie. But just because our group was switched on enough to claw their way out of a hopeless situation, that doesn't change how vulnerable they are even before being sat down at this dinner table. They are on the back foot, trapped in their territory, and none of them are operating at peak capacity. Whatever comes next, it is going to hurt. I don't know that I have much more to say. There is a reason why I decided to, in our notes, stop here for now. Audience, if you've not read the next chapter, it's going to be especially hard-hitting. A lot of what you are going to see next in Steamheart is going to speak for itself. Toby and I are going to have plenty to talk about. I've already written up the outline for it. Mm -hmm. But as I was going through it, I decided to end up having a relatively short list of talking points overall. As it's already been established, this stuff is so difficult for us to get through emotionally. Even just discussing it rather than not just re-listening to it, brings up a lot of difficult emotions for us to process, for me to process at least. I can't speak for how you are feeling about remembering these moments in the story, how the emotional resonance might echo with you and everything like that. Mm. But as someone that has been going through a lot of his own personal stress in life, as much as I like Steamheart as a story, I'm looking forward to... Behind the White Scarves for Panther Soul. Mm. So we can talk about all the glorious arcs in that particular story, the good and the bad, rather than being focused on the grim details 
of this final act of this story. Not mm. to mention some of the glorious comedic hijinks that are awaiting us in Princess Thieves. There oh, are some so people, many hijinks. But they, there are some people that have been reading the story for the first time, and mm. it's always wonderful to find new audience members commenting on things as they go along for us to just sit back and go yes yes enjoy this wonderful so many day. of us there are dozens our of foot, us our foots are in the door <laughs> <laughs> it's been a hard part of the book to return to because we've established ourselves the way that we go through these books that we have the luxury and the indulgence to spend more time than most people would ever spend on entire like stories mm. on single sort of slices of it we are comprehensive in what we look at and explore because i think you and i both feel like there's so much of value to actually being able to do that and to mm. get to do that with these stories with these chapters but that does mean that when we come to chapters that deal with stuff like this, we don't want to just skim past it because it makes us uncomfortable. The comment there is that we would just be into these stories when they're light and breezy, that mm -hmm. by not addressing and talking about this and our response to this and just kind of reflecting on it, that it's a disservice to the stories, it's a disservice to the subject matter. Ultimately, Greg and I will always have our blind spots and the ways that we approach these. And all we can do is try our best to talk about it with consideration and do our level best. And that's how it should be. But it's meaningful to be able to use these stories as a whole spectrum. It gives meaning and definition to the moments of up-tempo when we have the moments like this where we feel as low as we do. I think the best metaphor to use is that all the stories that we've covered so far, and even the stories that we haven't gone into full retrospective with, they have their highs and their lows, but it's also how high do the highs get and how lows do the lows get? If we picture as being like as akin to a lake, that mm. when we get to a certain point and we go down and we're waiting ankle high, chest high, the water is risen up around our neck and we fear to be consumed by the darkness of this part of the story. CJ. Yeah. Between friends. Yeah. Is the water over your head? No, the water's exactly at my head. In some ways, this is the deepest we have ever been for the longest sustained period, which mm -hmm. is why we have been dealing with this in small bite-sized chunks and mm. doing everything we can to find... Keep ourselves some, afloat. Keep ourselves afloat. Find any small pieces of humor, even black humor, to stave off the darkness at the edges of our vision. Mm -hmm. So I think, I, yes, we are going to end it there. Next time we record, we're going to be recovering. Going to be recovering. We're going to be covering chapters 35 through 38. So the four penultimate chapters, and after that would be 39, 40, 41, and 42. We're going to breeze past a whole bunch of the stuff that's going to be happening. I, again, this is just us covering the topics that feel worthy of deeper diving into. Mm -hmm. The story, as always, is the primary thing, and this is us just expressing our thoughts, our love, our analysis of those highs and lows. Mm -hmm. It's an awfully good vehicle for reflection and critical consideration. Mm -hmm. So we hope that the first few weeks of 2023 have been good to you, dear audience. And because I feel it's overdue, being that the, uh, the flag has been handed off to us, 
I think we're going to end this session by me and Toby saying, see, see you around, around the multiverse. Instead of the two-hour extravaganda from last time, this episode ends up a lot shorter. There's going to be some extra content finding its way into the next couple Beyond the Wind doors, including me and Toby and Maureen and Sarah being ridiculous, as well as discussions on other media we've watched recently. I'm also going to record an analysis on my experience watching ten horror movies assigned to me by Alex Shaw and Alejandro Vargas as well as the highs and lows felt throughout that experience. But before the end, I also want to bring up that a couple of those movies were informative on personal ethical musings, and how I relate them to the experience of this dark heart of Alex's novel. I'm not going to get into the specifics, just in case there are people that have watched neither 1973's The Wicker Man, or the third Purge movie, titled Election Year. But both of these movies made me think a lot about how you respond to and deal with people whose beliefs are opposed to yours. In this day and age, it's not just that we believe something different, but that those people can be violently opposed not only to your opinion, but indeed to your very existence. In older days, violent response was the norm. There were crusades both real and figurative to sanction excommunicate, and kill threats to nation-states, to the Christian church. One would think that we've moved beyond that, but the simple truth is that we never have. We are a hair's breadth away to that kind of response being tacitly approved again, rather than trying to hide behind layers of code and law written to assist white supremacy. I look at all of this the right-wingers and fundamentalists and fascists, and see them as a cancer on a healthy society, and feel like anything we do is justified to remove them. And the supreme irony is that that is the same way they see us. That is how they have always felt, and are just now saying the quiet part loud. And this final confrontation in Steamheart is asking, how do we deal with that painful truth? I am supremely conflicted in my feelings. I also know that there are people that say we should be better than them. I'm not sure I want to be better than them. Because it feels like they always win and we always lose because we don't want to get our hands dirty. We have to find a way to face them without losing too much of ourselves in the process. Otherwise, the center will not hold, because the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Listeners, in these troubling times, in 2023, stay safe, and find a way to fight for what is right, fight for your values, fight for our humanity, and try and find the answers that we need to survive and beat back that darkness. Until next time, this is the supergroup Bad Wolves, singing a heartrending cover that was originally intended to include Dolores Riordan of the Cranberries, before her passing on January 15th of 2018. Silence, who are
silence we must be